Verse 7. Almost done with our study in Ezra. Hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do 7 and 8 tonight, which puts us in position to maybe finish up the book next week in chapters 9 and 10. Now, Ezra reads like a business report. You've heard me say this. This is a very official book talking about the return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity. And you've heard me say this for the last few weeks. There's been three returns from Babylonian captivity. The Jews were taken over by Babylon and they were in captivity for 70 years. And then by God's hand, they were sent back in three different groups. The first one was through Zerubbabel and Joshua. The second one was through Ezra. And the third one was through Nehemiah. And that's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about. Now, we talked a lot about in the first six chapters, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they rebuilt the temple. And then there's a big time break. If you'd like to take notes in your Bible, verse 22 of chapter 6 to verse 1 of chapter 7 is a span of about 60 years. About 60 years. It's during that time that the book of Esther happens. So Esther happens between Ezra chapter 6 verse 22 and Ezra chapter 7 verse 1. So Esther happens during that time. And then what happens, God moves again in this king of Artaxerxes. And he says, I'm sending the Jews back again. And now Ezra comes back to get the people's spiritual life in order. Zerubbabel came back to rebuild the temple. Ezra comes back to get their spiritual lives in order. Then Nehemiah comes back, ministers with Ezra to rebuild the walls. And that's the return of the Jews then. And then the Jews stay in this geographical area until Rome comes and conquers them. And that's what happens later on. But it's three returns under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And tonight we have Ezra leading back a group of people, about 1,500 men, to rebuild the nation spiritually. He's got a tough job. A very difficult job. But tonight we get to see the preparations of Ezra. We just introduced ourselves to him last week. Let's just remind ourselves a little bit here. If you look at verses 1 through 5, where it gives that genealogy, the main thing you know is this, is jump down to verse 5. The son of Abshua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Elziar, the son of Aaron, chief priest. Ezra can trace his genealogy back to Aaron, the chief priest. So, therefore, Ezra is actually a descendant of the chief priest, so therefore he comes back in that spiritual position of authority. Now, there was no temple set up in Babylon where they're in captivity. So what did Ezra do? Verse 6, Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. He was a skilled scribe. He studied the law. Now, there was no temple to work in. There was no sacrifices going on. But Ezra knew it was important to understand the law, so therefore he spent his time studying it and being repaired. Excuse me, being prepared. And this is even repeated. Look at verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandment of the Lord of his statutes to Israel. God wants us to know that Ezra was the guy to come back and rebuild the nation spiritually because he knew it and he understood what the word said. How do we know this? Take a look one more verse here. Look at verse 10. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statues and ordinances in Israel. I tell you, that's your goal right there, guys. Verse 10. Just break this down with me. He had prepared his heart, so he prepared. Next one is to seek the law. He would seek. And the next thing, he would do it. Third one's do. And then the fourth one is teach. So prepared, seek, do, Teach. Prepared, seek, do, teach. Now, depending on your translation, some of your translations have words like he was determined, he studied, and he obeyed. There's a lot going on right there. Let's just talk about this for a second. I have learned over the 20 years that I've been out here 
that when I run into somebody on a Saturday, and maybe they haven't been at church for a while, and we talk about coming out to church, and I say, hey, I haven't seen you, miss you, and you know, they said, yeah, I need to get back out there. Oh, it'll be great to see you. And you know what, Pastor? I, hopefully I'll make, it, I'll make it Sunday. Hopefully I can make it Sunday. We'll get up Sunday and see how the kids are doing. We'll see how everybody's doing. Maybe you'll see us Sunday morning. I know right then and there, I'm not going to see them Sunday morning. If you plan on going to bed Saturday night and seeing how everybody is Sunday morning, you're probably not going to come to church Sunday morning. When you go to bed Saturday night with your alarm set, with your clothes set out, and tell the kids, hey, we're leaving for church at 940, that means you're prepared. That means you're determined, and you're probably going to go. It's amazing what preparation determines. Now, don't jump on me. I understand sickness can pop up, flat tires can pop up. I get that. But when we just kind of think about it, we usually don't do it. How many of us have thought about exercising more, but the ones that are prepared set the alarm, have a plan, and go do it? How many of us have thought about getting in the Word more, and so we sit down and we're on our couch, it's like, you know, I really should get in the Word more. Now, where's my Bible? Can't find your Bible, but two inches from you is the remote. Guess what you're going to pick up? So when you are prepared to determine to do something, you take steps of preparation, you get ready for it, and this word prepared or determined means firm, stable, established. It is part of your life. It's not a legalistic have to, but Lord, I'm prepared and determined to do it. We have something that we like to do at our house. We start our day out at 8.30, we stop what we're doing, and we stop and we do a morning devotion, and we do a prayer at 8.30. Now, this morning, I had some stuff pop up, and I had a lot of texts coming in. So I was still in my room at 8.30 responding to texts. 8.31, Judah comes in my room and says, Dad, it's 8.30. It's time for devotions. I said, okay, all right, I'll I'll get out there as soon as I can and finish this up. I got out there four minutes later, 8.35, and the boys were already sitting down reading and praying. Now, I don't say that to build up Dawn and I because Dawn was still asleep. She's a failure. Of when it comes to spiritually leading the family. So I'm not trying to build us up. I'm saying that that has been ingrained into the boys. That there's a prepared determination. That this is what's important. So we try to do it. And so the same thing happens spiritually. If I am determined to start my day out with the Lord. I will have my, my Bible ready. I'll have my devotional ready. And I will wake up in the morning saying this is what I do to start my day. Now if I want to do it. And I hope to do it. And I, I kind of hope it works out. I'll probably not get to it. Ezra was determined to grow and go deeper in the Lord. And if you are here and that is your goal, I want to grow, it's not a want to. You're determined to do it. Remember what we read about Jesus in the New Testament when the guys came to him and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, follow me. They said, I will, but let me first go bury my father. Let me go first look at the land I bought. First, let me go bid farewell to those who are at my house. They had the heart. They had the vocal They weren't determined to do it. I like this about Ezra. He is determined. He's prepared to do this. So what does he do after he's determined and he's prepared? He seeks the law. He studies the law. Guys, this is hard for me to understand. Not because I'm perfect or got it figured out. I find God's word absolutely exciting. I just love it. When I get into it, it just just blows my mind, the stuff that's in there. When I'm going through a problem or situation... And I find that verse that deals exactly with what I'm struggling with. That's the Holy Spirit working. Or if I'm reading something, and next thing you know, four, five, six hours later, I'm talking to someone, and that exact same situation pops up, and the Lord brings to memory what I read hours earlier, man, there is something about it. I just cannot tell you, seek 
the law, study the word, get in there and make a time and effort to do it. Now, what does that look like for you personally? I don't know. I know what I do. I know what works for me. I don't know what works for you. You need to find the plan that works for you, and you will be blessed by it. Men, here tonight, if you have family at home or married, I encourage you, be that spiritual leader of your family trying to do that as well. And if that doesn't work out, ladies, and your husband doesn't want to, you on your own, make the time as an individual walking with Christ to be prepared, to be determined, to seek and study the word, and you will be blessed. And not only seek and study it, look at verse 10. Do it. Not just head knowledge. What good does it do to quote every verse on morality but not live it? You're a hypocrite. What good does it do to know all this knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, but you never apply it to your life? So you need to be prepared, be determined, seek and study it, then obey it and do it. And look at the last one, verse 10. Teach it. Pass on what you've learned to other people. This is what the Lord has shown me, and I want to encourage you with this. This is what the Lord's doing in my life. This is what I want you to do. Boy, I tell you, that's a fun thing. When you see it all come together. Who do you teach? Everybody. Jump ahead to verse 25. Verse 25. This is a letter that Artaxerxes wrote for Ezra. But look at one of the things that he wants Ezra to do. Verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in this region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. How simple is that? So if you're here tonight and you know the book of Ezra chapter 7, amen. I want to share with you what the Lord's laid on my heart. If you're here tonight and you have never read Ezra chapter 7, amen. Let me tell you what I've learned. That's what you do when you, anytime you run into somebody. So you run into someone who's born again. Amen. Hey, you're saved. I'm saved. How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? You run into somebody who's not saved. Hey, if the Lord opens a door, let me tell you about Christ. Every person you run into is either a chance to bless and encourage as a brother or sister in the Lord or to point them towards Jesus Christ. Every interaction is either somebody saved or not saved. What a wonderful example. And this is what's happening in verse 25. If they know the laws, tell it to them again. Verse 25, if they don't know the laws, tell it to them for the first time. What does this look like in practice? Go with me to Nehemiah, please. Nehemiah chapter 8. One book to the right. Nehemiah chapter 8 is a wonderful little snapshot of what church looked like a few thousand years ago. So, Nehemiah chapter 8, remember I told you there's three groups. Nehemiah was the group that came back to rebuild the walls. Him and Ezra, their ministries overlap for a little bit. So, Nehemiah comes back, and what's Ezra going to do? Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law, and Moses with the Lord commanded Israel. So, what do you see? You see God wanting his kids to get together as a group. Anytime I run into somebody who wants to do the whole solo Christian thing, there's no scriptural backing for that in any way whatsoever. I do better on my own. I can take care of myself Sunday morning. I get up and I do this. I do that. No, God has called you to corporately get together as a body of Christ. Now, people have a lot of reasons why they don't want to. And sometimes they sound kind of justifiable. I don't really want to get together because I have a difficulty with people there or something like that. Probably the better reason to get together because God is trying to teach you how to love the unlovables. 
Getting together corporately is a way to train us to love and to work together through the Holy Spirit. So we get together as one. Verse 2, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So you're teaching them with understanding. Meet them where they're at and teach them. That's what I love about small groups. When you're teaching a small group, you could have somebody who's never heard the name of Jesus before sitting beside someone who's been a Christian for 80 years. That's amazing. Let's meet you where you're at, and let's tell you with understanding about God's Word. So, they get together, verse 3, and they read it. Look at the middle of the verse 3. Men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Yeah, you guys got a part in this too. You're supposed to pay attention. Now, don't think I don't notice. I've done this for a while. I know when people fall asleep on Sundays. I see it. I know when people are doodling. and No one takes notes that much. I know that. I see people look right out the window for 40 minutes straight. Unless Jesus is returning, there's not that much exciting going on out there. There's a point of being attentive. If you come into church with this mindset of, I'm here, you're not going to get anything out of it. So it just blows my mind how I can talk to people, and I'm not even talking about my teaching, just any type of teaching, where one person can walk away saying, oh, wow, the Holy Spirit really moved, the Lord really moved in that message. The other guy's saying, I didn't get anything out of it. If you come in with the mindset of, I'm just going to hear, watch the clock, get out of here, my wife made me come, my parents made me come, or whatever, I'm bored, I'm tired, I'm hungry. If you're not coming attentive, the Holy Spirit's not going to force anything down your throat. He's not. We have to come with an understanding of, Lord, I want to learn. I want to learn. That's something I've had to learn over the years as a pastor. It's so much better to have a group of people that want to learn than a church that's just full. What good does it do to have people just filling seats? You want people who want to learn, that want to grow, that want to be equipped, then let's go out and change the world for Jesus Christ. That's the exciting part of it. So verse 4, Ezra stands up. And so he's got his people to help him. Verse 5, he opens the book in the sight of the people. I think it's important to teach God's word. I'm not against topicals. I'm not against messages like that. But I don't think there's anything better than this verse-by-verse teaching of God's word. Verse 5, standing above all the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up. Please note, back then, when God's word was read, guess what the people listening did? They stood They stood out of respect for what the Lord was doing. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You know, if when you have corporate teaching, it's nice to also have corporate worship. That's something where the Lord wants us to do this together, the teaching and the worship right there. Please remember when I use the word corporate and we're talking about the body of Christ, you're never going to agree. You'll never always agree on how the worship should be, song selection, style, volume, singer. You'll never agree. Just come with the heart to say, Jesus, I want to praise you for who you are and what you're doing. So they worship the Lord. And then look, you have other people helping. Verse 7, Yeshua, Bena, Sherabiah, etc. Help the people understand the law and the people stood in their place. Right now as we're speaking... There's people back there in room three teaching kids on their level. CBC teaching on their level. We have kids in room five teaching on their level. People in room six teaching on their level. 
Taking the kids where they're at and teaching them on their level to give them understanding of God's word. I encourage you parents, if you have kids that come out or grandkids, when you go home, ask them, who was your teacher today? What did you learn? That accountability of what are you guys getting out of it? So teach it. What do you teach? Verse 8, they read distinctly from the book and the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. You read it. And you help explain it. That's the gift of teaching to equip you to go do something about it. And guess what happens when God's word is taught? Look what happens to the people. They mourn. They weep. They're moved. They're touched. That's good. That's good to hopefully come away and be, to be honest, a little convicted. To be encouraged. To be uplifted. To be moved. Because God's word is alive, powerful, and active. That's supposed to cut right to the heart be moved then as you leave verse 10 we hope that you leave as it says in verse 10 with joy for the joy of the lord is your strength and look at verse 12 they went away eating and drinking and rejoicing greatly you see fellowship i love when we get done with a wednesday or a sunday and people just like to hang around and talk Sometimes you see people breaking up into little groups and praying over something. Or you're seeing them have a conversation. You walk by and you hear them talking about what the Lord's doing. Oh, that blesses me. There's a great passage in the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3 where it says that God listens in on our conversations and listens to our words. It reminds me as a parent when my boys may be in a room and they don't know I'm around. And their doors crack and I can stand on the outside. And it just blesses me to hear them talk and interact with each other. The Lord in heaven listens to our conversations with each other. And when we say things about him, he is blessed by it. And it says in the book of Malachi, he writes it down. He writes down a book of remembrance about our conversations that we have with other people about the Lord. Remember that now. The next time you have a conversation with another believer, think about what you choose to talk about. Because the Lord's listening in and the Lord's writing it down. So let's uplift people. Let's pray for people. Let's encourage people. That's what the Lord wants us to do. We can make a whole list of what that person's doing wrong. What good does that do? Let's pray for them. Let's uplift them. Let's encourage them. So what you see here in Nehemiah chapter 8... This is what Ezra was doing. They're going to read the law. They're going to have a time of worship. They're going to help people understand it. They're going to teach it. People are going to be moved. And the response is going to be joy and fellowship. What a blessing that that is. And so God raised up Ezra, a powerful scribe that determined in his heart to study and obey and do God's word. And he did this for years of preparation, knowing that he was going to be used by the Lord. Did he know exactly? Probably not. But the Lord had this on his life, and Ezra was going to go out there, and what a job he had to teach people God's word. I encourage you, be that Ezra. Study, seek, be prepared, obey, teach it, and be blessed. Any quick questions, comments over Nehemiah chapter 8 or Ezra 7 on just the character who Ezra was? Because that's what we're going to be talking about here now through the rest of the study. All right, let's move on then. So this letter... Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, this would be the son of the king that had married Esther. So he is now king, and he sends this letter with Ezra. Basically, Ezra, it's a long letter, we're only going to hit the highlights. He says to Ezra, in verse 13, take what you want. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. Ezra, take whoever you want. 
So Ezra gets to determine who wants to go, who wants to volunteer. He gets to take them. Not just take the people. Take whatever you want. Look at verse 15. And whereas you are to carry the silver and the gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Not only take the people, take what you want. Take what you need. It's an amazing blessing of the Lord right there. What did he take? Verse 22. Hundred talents of silver, hundred cords of wheat, hundred baths of wine, hundred baths of oil, salt without prescribed limit. If you would figure this out as best as we could tell, you're talking millions and millions of dollars of precious metals and goods that he was allowed to take with him. Why? Why would a secular king do all this? Verse 27, same chapter. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord in which is in Jerusalem because the Lord was in it. There, there is no, listen, there is no explanation for this. There's none. When we went back and first started our study in Ezra and we look at these different kings that the Lord moved in their heart, Darius, Artaxerxes, Cyrus, it makes no sense that this secular king would stop and say, hey, I care about the Jews. You know what I think the Jews need? I think the Jews need a temple. I'm going to send you out. Go rebuild a temple. In fact, take any money or supplies you want. No, it doesn't make any sense. And to do it again with Ezra and then to do it again with Nehemiah, it had to be the Lord's hand upon them. It's just an amazing, beautiful thing. And this is not something that should surprise us. If you're of a little bit older generation and you remember 1948, we're getting close here to celebrating the 69th year of the existence of Israel in May. A nation that shouldn't have existed, that came out of nowhere. Go back and read the history of Israel becoming a nation back in the 40s and the Lord moving and working in nations and people's hearts. This is what the Lord does. So, God is moving and working in this king. It doesn't make any sense, but the Lord is doing it. And Ezra knows it's the Lord. We just read verse 27. Look at verse 28. And he has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Now, forgive me for the repetition of this point, but you've got to see how important this point is. Chapter 7, verse 6. Look what Ezra says. The king granted him all the requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Remember that phrase, hand of the Lord his God upon him. Jump ahead to verse 9. According to the good hand of his God upon him. Let's keep this theme going. Verse 28, which we just read. That the Lord my God was upon me. And just to keep this going, chapter 8, verse 18. Same thing. Thus, by the good hand of our God upon us. Verse 22. What does it say right here? The good who seeks him upon God is upon all of us. The hand of our God is upon all of us. There, Verse 22. And lastly, in verse 31, you know what I'm going to say. Same thing. And the hand of our God was upon us. Ezra knew what he was saying. This is, does not make sense. This does not work out. This has to be the Lord. That's what it has to be. Have you ever had a situation in your life which just absolutely makes no sense? I mean, just the, the doors are opening. The windows are opening. God is just taking care of all the details. Because why? The Lord's hand is upon you. What a beautiful thing that is. I was just talking to someone today on the phone who's going through a difficult situation. And it's one of those situations where it does not look like there's an easy answer. 
And I said, you know what? I was just studying Ezra, and one of the phrases we're going to talk about tonight is God's good hand being upon you. I said, that's what we need to pray for you. It's just that the Lord's hand is upon you because that's the only way this is going to work out. It's the only way. If you are in a situation right now, you're backed into a corner and you look like there's no solution, then you need to pray, Lord, I just pray your good hand to be upon me. If you know someone who's backed into a corner and it looks like there's no solution, hey, can I pray for you just that the Lord's hand to be upon you? That's what you see here in Ezra 7 and 8, repeated six different times. Six different times. So that is the overview of chapter 7. Chapter 8 now goes into the details of the actual trip they took. This is the actual trip of the people. Look at verses 1 through 14 of Ezra chapter 8. And no, we're not going to read those names. But what you have right there is a list of about 1,500 people that came back to Jerusalem. Now, we've talked about this before in our study in Ezra. Why? Why is this chapter here? And remember what I told you. You have to look at these chapters as God's refrigerator. He loves these people. These are the people that were willing to get up and go, leave Babylon, travel, I think it was about 500 miles, to start over again for the Lord. That means a lot to him. If you'd come into my house and you come into my kitchen, you're going to see a lot of drawings that make no sense to you. You're going to see a lot of pictures that mean nothing to you, but they mean a whole lot to Dawn and I. Because there's something about our kids. If I go into your house, I'm going to see your refrigerator, grandmas, grandpas, mom, dads, filled with pictures of your kids in sporting garb and things like that. And I'm going to pretend to be excited and like it. But really, it means nothing to me because I don't know them like you do. And you're going to tell me about your third cousin, second wife, whatever. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. But the point is, it's important. So just like the Lord, you look at verses 1 through 14, and you look at verse 12, and you say, the sons of Asgod, Jehonian, the son of Hakatan, with 100... And you're like, what difference does it make? It makes a lot of difference to God. A few thousand years ago, these guys were willing to pack up and move. And the Lord says, I want to mark this down for eternity, that you were willing to take a step of faith to go to Jerusalem and represent me, and I want that remembered, and I'm sticking you on my refrigerator. I think that's a neat thing of the Lord and how much he loves us. So they take 1,500 people, but you get to verse 15, and they're kind of camping. They're camping for three days, taking a little bit of a break. And Ezra looks around in verse 15, I looked among the people and the priest and found none of the sons of Levi. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, you need the sons of Levi. If you're going to go do the temple and you're going to get things up and going the way they're supposed to be, you need the high priest... You need sons of Aaron that were, that were the actual priest. But then you need the Levites from the tribe of Levi. These were the ones that actually helped out the priest. These people were instrumental and just as important. So Ezra looks around, says, I don't see any Levites with me. So verse 16, I need some men of understanding. I send them back. And I say, hey, could you please bring us some servants here? Verse 17, for the house of God. So they go and they bring some people back and look at verse 20. All of them were designated by name. So now you got the Levites. So now Ezra's coming back. He's got everything in order. He's getting ready. And guess what happens? Gets a little bit of cold feet. Has that ever happened to you? You're excited. You're going to take this huge step of faith. You are going to, I don't know, you're finally going to go talk to that co-worker on break. And you've been prayed up and ready. And you look over and that guy is sitting by himself at the table. It's a perfect opportunity. 
So you start walking towards them and you get within about five feet of them and now you're scared out of your mind. You've been prayed up. You're fasted up. You told everybody at church, pray for me. I'm going to go talk to George tomorrow at work. And then you're scared. You ever done that where maybe you're going to start up a little Bible study? It's like, I'm going to have a Bible study. Announce it. 7 o'clock Mondays at your house. And at 6.59, you're going, I hope nobody shows up. You know? Ezra, he gets close. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Havia that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and our possessions. Now, now don't read ahead, please. And I know some of you, as soon as I say don't read ahead, you start reading ahead. Don't read ahead. Verse 21 sounds right, okay? Um, So we're going to have a time of fasting, humble ourselves before the Lord. And look, I got little ones, we got kids, we got possessions. Why is Ezra getting a little bit scared here, maybe? Look at verse 22 now. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those who for good who seek him, but his power and wrath are against all those who forsake him. Ezra's getting ready to leave. And he stops and he realizes, I got a bunch of little kids with me. He stops and he realizes, I have millions and millions of dollars of silver, wine, oil. And we're going to go on this hundred plus mile journey that's going to take us four months with no protection. He's a little nervous. So what does he do? He stops, he fasts and prays. Guys, that is such a wonderful example. I cannot stress that. That point is almost so simple that you skip over it. Is there something that you're worked up about? Stop, fast, and pray. Is there something you need wisdom on? Stop, fast, and pray. Your kid's making a choice you don't like. You can't change their mind. Stop, fast, and pray. I mean, your work's tough. Your marriage is falling apart. I don't know. Stop, fast, and pray. Real quick reminder what fasting is. Fasting is when you stop and you say, I'm not going to feed the physical flesh, but I'm going to feed the spiritual man. So that time I would have spent preparing a meal, the time I would have spent eating a meal, I'm going to not use that time for me, and I'm going to go into a quiet place, and I'm just going to pray and to seek the Lord. And God's not going to answer me because, wow, I went without a meal. I owe you. No, because I'm just going to seek Him. And I may, what I may get out of fasting is I just may get a peace that surpasses all understanding. I may get a joy. I may get wisdom on how to handle that situation I never thought. If you're going to go into fasting thinking, I fasted, so now God's going to have to do what I say, you're misunderstanding fasting. You may have a situation that's really rough. You go in and you fast, the situation still is rough. The situation hasn't changed. God's just changed how you look at it. And maybe he gives you joy, he gives you peace, he gives you wisdom. Verse 23, so we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. I love the honesty of Ezra. I got kids, I got money, I got a lot. I told the king, God's good, he will protect us. And now I'm kind of wondering, why did I say that? Because in Nehemiah, Nehemiah got an armed guard. Nehemiah came after Ezra. Do you think Ezra went up to Nehemiah and said, hey, buddy, the king offers you soldiers, take them. Take them. But Ezra here in faith said the Lord will see us through, and that's exactly what happened. Now, let's just stop here real quick for a second. Any quick questions over what we just read right there? Uh, Ezra leading the people, the blessings of what they get to take for the temple, uh, fasting, praying, seeking the Lord. Anything about that here real quick before we go on? Okay. So, let's finish up this chapter. 
What happens right here is after the prayer and fasting, verses 24 on, I'm going to kind of hit this real quick, is what you're going to read is this. They weigh out everything in verse 25. They weigh out to them the silver, the gold, the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king, his counselors, and his princes in Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into the hand, and he lists all the weights. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, guess what he does? He weighs everything again. Accountability. You know, there's a reason why we have two people count the giving out here at church. It's not because we don't trust them, because it's good to have the accountability. Not because, once again, we don't trust them, but in case someone would ever make an accusation. No, no, no. we got a couple people up there for accountability. And Ezra right here, look at the wisdom. I'm going to weigh it before I leave, mark it down, and then when I get there, I'm going to weigh it again. That's about being blameless. You take away any weapon the enemy could offer you. You just, you just say, I, I'm just going to be completely blameless about this. One of my favorite things to say out here at church is that I have nothing to do with the money. Nothing to do. So when somebody comes up and asks me about some financial stuff, I, I don't touch the money. I don't do anything with the money for accountability purposes. That way it has nothing to do with me. Every now and then I'll be going over to do a home visit or visit somebody. Maybe they haven't been at church at a while for health reasons or life reasons, whatever. And they'll hand me an envelope. And they'll say, hey, can you put this in the giving box at church? I hate that. I hate that because I don't want to have anything. So what I do is this. I say, okay, I can do it. And and I immediately email uh, Nancy, who helps count the money out here. And I email Rich. And I say, I've been given an envelope by this person. And I'm going and placing it in the giving box. Now, why do I have to do that? I don't have to. I choose to. I want the accountability That I am saying, here it is, this is what it is, I'm not having anything to do with it. I think there's just good, godly wisdom there. And I think that good, godly wisdom goes into lots of other different areas of life. If I have a woman that contacts me and says, hey, can we sit down and talk sometime? I usually say, that's great. I'm going to probably, do you care if I have Dawn come out and join us? You know, just on Sunday, we finished with a little bit of a prayer altar call. I, I, you know, I said, hey, could Carrie, Shannon, or Lynette come up? Let's have a woman up here. Just little steps that could be taken. Listen, when I, when I say this statement, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The enemy is really good about being bad. And he'll do whatever he can to mess things up. And I think it's wisdom for us as believers to take practical steps of accountability sometimes and just say, I'm going to weigh the money before I leave, and I'm going to weigh the money when I get there, and guess what? The weights are going to match up. I'm blameless. I think that's wisdom. And I think we could take that wisdom into a lot of other areas of our life. Do you have an eye that likes to wander on the computer? Put a filter on it. Get some accountability. You have a tendency to go do something stupid at certain times of the day. Text your partner, your buddy, and say, Hey, can you text? Can you pray for me? Can you call me? Can you remind me? Can you help me have some accountability here? That's this good, godly wisdom. Put that into practice. And that's what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing. So we end up here in chapter 8 with Ezra back in Jerusalem. He's all ready to go. He's got the gifts He's got the gifts from the king to get things up and going. He's got the spiritual background to get up things and going. He's got the Levites to help. He's ready to go. And then next week in chapter 9, he walks into a huge spiritual mess. And what happens now is all that time of prayer, fasting, studying the word is all put into practice in the final two chapters of the book of Ezra as Ezra has to deal with some huge spiritual messes. Because his job, 
is not to rebuild the temple. That was Zerubbabel. It's not to rebuild the walls. That's Nehemiah. His job is to get the people in spiritual order, and that's what he's going to do here in chapters 9 and 10. So, any final questions, comments here about anything in Ezra chapter 7 or 8? Megan. I mean, do you just flip the Bible open anywhere? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know what to do. No, I, I would not flip the Bible open anywhere. And this is, and this, let me give you a, a, a long answer to this. This happens a lot. Oh, people come up to me and say, you know, I just flipped the Bible open the other day and it went right to the verse I needed. Amen, God's good. That's what the Lord does. I always use this example. You know, anything that we have in our home of a food item is a food item that we have wanted and purchased at one time or another. We have not purposely bought anything that we said, boy, I think this will taste awful. Let's buy it and bring it home. So anything in our home has been, for a reason, purchased. Now, if I would blindly go up to my cupboards at home and say, I'm hungry, and I would close my eyes and just randomly pick out three things. So I get pepper, I get cinnamon, and brown sugar. Those are three items that I have purchased at one time that would do a great job in a meal at the right moment, but combined together is really not going to do that great of a job. My point is this. When you flip the Bible open anywhere, it's God's Word. It's good. The Holy Spirit is good. But if you're going to go prepare a meal that you want at home, you get a recipe out, you get the ingredients out, you put the time, energy, and preparation to it, and you'll get a whole lot more fun out of that food than you would just blindly picking items. So when it comes to studying God's Word, take the time, energy, and effort to pick a book that the Lord has led you to and take the time to study it, to prepare it. Maybe you get a notebook and a pen to write down things that you liked or you understood or maybe questions you have. You can then, you know, wives, ask your husband, what do you think this means? Or then you could contact Rich or I and say, hey, what do you think? Maybe invest in a good commentary to go along with it. You're taking the time to prepare a spiritual meal for you. So could you just blindly find a verse? Yeah, because God's good. But you're going to get more out of it if you take the time and energy and prepare for it. So I hope that helps. Anybody else have anything? Russell. Mm-hmm. In Daniel chapter 9? No, I don't believe it's the same Artaxerxes. That was a title. That a lot of them used, and so it could be a different one, though. But no, I do not believe that's the same Artaxerxes in Daniel chapter 9. Yes? This is, his father was the king that married Esther. So would he have known we don't have enough information to overlap when he would have been born versus when Mordecai would have died? I mean, uh, not Mordecai would have died. Um, Haman died. We're talking about Mordecai the Jew. I don't know enough of that. Say again? Right, right. Would they have overlapped? We don't know 100% for sure. I would, I would think so, but we don't know the dates to line up for sure. So, anybody else have anything? Yes, yeah, Sarah. Yes, I will. 
Sarah, I will give you my top three or five commentaries privately. I would love to talk to you about that privately on what I think a good commentary is. Because I have ones I thoroughly enjoy. So, what's that? I have ones I thoroughly hate as well, too. So I will gladly, privately talk to you about any commentary you want. I have learned over the years when someone asked me on a Wednesday, Hey, what do you think of this translation of the Bible? Hey, let's talk about that privately. That sounds like a great conversation to have when no one else is around because that's just going to create issues and problems. So, no, I have commentaries I thoroughly enjoy. I have commentaries that I like and uh, would love to get a chance to talk about that. So... Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right, hey, let's pray then. Can you guys stand with me? Lord, as I just come to you now, um, we're thankful. Thankful just to, to be here and to be the people you've called us to be. Lord, you, you said that we're supposed to learn from these Old Testament examples. And I pray, what can we learn from Ezra? Help us to be students of the word. Help us to be people that obey it, to study it, to prepare, and to teach it, Lord. And to go out and live it. Help us to be people that pray. Help us to be people that fast. Help us to be people that seek you during difficult times. Help us be people of faith that are willing to take that step in all ways and all things. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, I'll be up here to pray if anybody has anything they want to pray over. And uh, you guys have a good week, and God bless.